Amen. Beautiful. Let's stand as Claire lights the candle. We're going to read out of Matthew 28. Jesus has just resurrected. He had directed um, the disciples and others to go to Galilee to meet him. Some of you remember that from last week. And this is where we pick up Matthew 28, Galilee, shortly after the resurrection. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, And teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Lord, thank you for the honesty of your word. And for the way that you communicate with us. Meet us at the place that we live. The address that we live at this morning. Each one of us in a different way. Thank you that your word meets us in that place. So we open ourselves to your wisdom, to your goodness, to your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can go ahead and be seated. So I want to talk to you for a minute about this issue of doubt. Faith and doubt is what we're talking about. Um, I've got a lot of... uh, a lot of thanks I want to give toward John Ortberg for a lot of the resources that I've gathered for this talk, uh, in particular a book uh, that I believe we have in the bookstore um, uh, called No Doubt um, is maybe one of the best books that I've come across uh, around this subject of doubt and how to approach it as a Christ follower. But I want to talk to you about doubt. It's interesting. This is right after the resurrection. Uh, doubt is something that shows up a lot right before the resurrection, uh, during the crucifixion, and then after the resurrection. So you can kind of understand it maybe at other times, but it's harder maybe to understand or to think that there were disciples that were doubting after the resurrection. The scripture here in Matthew 28 says some of them doubted. Some of those 11, I'm sure there were many others that were doubting, doubted even though they've seen Jesus in a resurrected form. Just days after the resurrection. It's powerful, powerful stuff. Jesus uh, and the word doesn't back off from the doubt. As a matter of fact, I think it's intentional. It's in there. Uh, In John chapter 20, speaking about after the resurrection, uh, and you might do well to read this. That's the account in John 20, starting with verse 19, talks about Thomas and Thomas's doubt. Now, Thomas's doubt does not uh, be, re- it's not referred to for the first time in John 20. It's referred to at other times uh, as well, but it's really highlighted in John 20, right? So that's where uh, Thomas basically says, you know, the disciples say, look, we saw him. He's resurrected. And Thomas says, unless I see him, unless I actually actually touch the wounds uh, that he suffered, I'm not going to believe you. So sure enough, right after that conversation, or actually as that conversation is happening, Jesus walks through a wall and shows up in the room. So doubt is intentionally in the account 
throughout scripture and in particular right after the resurrection. I think it's there because we all have doubts if we're honest. Those, that are, those of us that are of strongest faith have doubts. As a matter of fact, when you think about it, you really can't, you, you really can't doubt unless there's faith uh, evidence, right? There's this, part of, there's this part of maybe, even if you're not a Christ follower, is there a God? And if you, if you begin to embrace that, part of that conversation that goes on internally in each one of us is, well, it's almost like a, a pros and cons. What, what should I not believe and what should I believe? So I want to talk to you uh, for a few minutes about this. Uh, uh, Gabron says this, says, doubt is a pain too lonely to know faith is his twin brother. So all of us, those of us, all of us have faith at some level, faith in different things, and all of us have these wrestling matches with doubt, okay? Where there is faith, there will always be a measure of doubt or uncertainty. It's just, it's there. It happens. Um, Bertrand Russell, when asked, uh, because there's these questions. Bertrand Russell, the, one of the famous atheists throughout history, he had questions. Um, he was asked shortly before he died, he was at a dinner party, and he was asked by a woman, uh, Bertrand, what will you do if all of a sudden you die and you're in the presence of God? And Bertrand Russell's response to that was, I would say you, sir, have not provided enough evidence. And some of us feel that way, don't we? There's these common questions when it comes. They're kind of categorical questions when it comes to doubts. It's, I want to call it doubts questioning companions. They're common questions. The first one is simply, why not more evidence? Why not? Russell would say that. He would say, you did not provide enough evidence. Like, why doesn't God just do everything for us, make sure that we're fully aware of the evidence of God's existence at all times? Why doesn't God just settle it once and for all? Why isn't the evidence more clear? Now, the question that we've got to ask ourselves is, if somebody raises from the dead and people are still not believing, how much evidence does it take for us to not doubt anymore? How much is enough for the Israelites? They went from miracle to miracle, seas are parting, plagues are happening, they're freed up from an oppression that's been happening in Egypt for 400 years, and within weeks, they are wanting to go back into captivity in Egypt, even though God had done all of these miraculous evidences, all kinds of things happening, and they want to turn around and go back to Egypt. Could it ever be enough for us? Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and within days, actually the next a day or two, you have the triumphal entry. Everybody's worshiping Jesus. It's like uh, he, he's done amazing things. Everybody is sure who Jesus is. But then as the week goes on, people are ready to crucify Jesus, and they actually do crucify Jesus. So it's not only Jesus resurrecting, Jesus also resurrects other people. Is there ever going to be, would there ever be enough evidence to prove 100% that God exists? But I would contend, even if God did do that for us, what God is after is not just to prove God's existence. God is certainly about proving God's existence. But God is about changing our heart. 
See, you could have 100% proof in something and still not have a heart change. So God's bigger priority in our life is that our hearts would change. The second question categorically when it comes to doubt and uncertainty is if, if God is real, if Jesus is the Messiah and he is Lord, why aren't Christians better people? I ask that about myself a lot of times. Why am I not a better person? Why aren't Christians a better advertisement for the product of Christianity? If God is real, why do we still do what we don't want to do and we do the things that we hate? Why is that? It's a good, it's a good question, but it's also really our problem, isn't it? I remember when, I, shortly after I gave my life to Christ, uh, we were playing in a church softball league, and uh, we had one of the guys on our team was a really great athlete. He was actually a professional hockey player at one point, and he was like an enforcer type of guy. His name was Ernie, and he was on like world championship softball teams, and we got this team together, and Ernie was a pitcher. Well, one of the rules in the church softball league was you weren't allowed to wear shorts. Heaven forbid that somebody, especially a woman, saw some man's knees. Anyway, so Ernie, Ernie shows up and uh, he has shorts on and we kind of chuckle. I said, Ernie, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. I guess maybe the first time you're up, you'll be out or something or you'll get a warning. And the uh, umpire came over and told Ernie, said, uh, you know what, um, you cannot go out on the pitcher's mound with, with shorts on. We'll, I'll throw you out of the game. Sure enough, Ernie, uh, the enforcer from the hockey, professional hockey team, Ernie, of course, strides out there to pitch. And uh, he had just gotten saved recently himself. And um, anyway, he gets heaved from the game. He gets thrown out, and the umpire's comment to him is, how can you behave this way when you, this is a Christian league, how can you behave this way? And Ernie kind of chuckled, and of course, he wasn't going to not say something back to the guy, and he said, you should have seen what I wore before I became a Christian. (laughs) So I don't know if Ernie's comment was the worst, or I think the short peace was worse. But listen, we're guilty, right? And skeptics bring up, rightfully so at times, crusades and inquisitions and the use of scripture to defend things like slavery and oppression, prejudice against gender prejudice, racial prejudice, socioeconomic prejudice. But the question has to be asked is, is any of that God's fault? Is any of that consistent with what Jesus taught? Of course not. The failure is humanity's failure. Whether you're a Christ follower or not, it's about our failure. We've been given all that we need to maintain the evidence for God's goodness in a life. The other question along with that that you have to ask is, because it has been attempted in societies to eliminate the presence of God from culture and societies. We, we're familiar with that. The 20th century was the biggest bloodbath in history. And the vast majority of that bloodbath was instituted by countries and leaders that were atheist or said that there was no place for God in society or culture. But then the third category is, well, why the pain? Why, if God is real, why not less pain? Or why not just eliminate pain? Why so much pain? Why so much suffering? 
If God is loving and powerful and good and competent, why does all of this happen? Well, this is a long conversation, but at its core, love, as C.S. Lewis says, cannot be existent without pain. To love is to hurt. To care means you will suffer at some level. But the difference between Jesus, difference between the Trinity and the Godhead, is God is the only deity that enters the suffering and pain. If, if to love is to feel pain and to suffer, it is Jesus going to the cross that is the ultimate sign to us out of the consistent sign of God's presence in our morning. I don't know how many times I have done funeral or memorial services over the last 35 years and thought to myself, when somebody has never acknowledged God in their life and thought, how can anybody process this kind of pain without God being in the midst of their life? Families trying to journey without the presence and the assurance that God is there in the midst of our suffering. See, it's interesting because at an intellectual level, Christianity really is the only religion that this is questioned. Yet Christianity is the only one where Jesus says, I enter in, blessed are you when you mourn. You will be comforted. I'll join you in your pain. He is the God who suffers with us. How horrible is it to suffer in silence, not thinking any, any support, anyone that can make a difference is there with you. People have, people have wondered about how people seem to become Christ followers after they die. Like all of a sudden, the family will start to say, well, you know, they had this going on or that going on. I believe the main reason for that is we all have this instinctual understanding that Jesus is there for us in our pain. There is nowhere else for us to go in our pain. The chaos and the pain of this world are so evident. But Jesus enters into that place. So there's the why nots of doubt or the why nots of uncertainty, but I believe that there's benefits. See, doubt can be a roadblock and is a roadblock to many of us. I would say to you today, if doubt has been, or maybe even today is a roadblock in your life, I would put before you the doubt and the, the uncertainty of your life and the leaning into those things and being honest with God and bringing your questions to the God who is not afraid of the questions that you have. As a matter of fact, God wants to be there to help you process that in faith. It is not a contradiction of faith to have doubts. Doubt can be a roadblock to us or doubt 
and I believe this is God's intention, doubt and uncertainty can be an amazing launch pad for our growth and God's goodness in our life. Frederick Buechner says it this way, says almost nothing that makes a real difference can be proven. See, the fact that we have faith in God, that faith requires something that is unseen, a stretching out. Of course, there's uncertainty with some of that. But we want to grow in our faith. So the benefits of doubt, uh, first of all, is humility. Exactly. (laughs) Humility. Doubt brings up the questions in us where we realize that you are not God and I am not God. Isn't that refreshing? Isn't that awesome to know? You know that in your mind, but to consider that there is a God who goes beyond what you are able to do and be. I thank God sometimes that all of my prayers haven't been answered the way I wanted them to be answered. Some of you in this room are, are, are fortunate that you didn't have that prayer answered to date that person, that you're just thanking God at this point years down the road, or that job that you wanted that wouldn't have been the job you needed. God is bigger than us. See, humility comes with doubt. Some, some, some people would do better with a little less certainty. Don't you think? Don't you think some people could use a little bit of uncertainty? Religious fanatics do extensive damage mainly because it's fueled by certainty and a lack of honest questions about things they refuse to look at. Usually when Christians, for instance, are looked at as a problem on the earth, one of the things that's looked at is the fanatical non-questioning totally certain of everything, not wanting to even have a conversation, not being intellectually honest with what's going on in their interiority. See, we're invited to a passion-filled pursuit of God, but at the same time holding honest questions. I remember uh, shortly after Claire and I, no, actually I was in high school, before I met Claire, I was a witness to a car accident. And all I saw was a part, you know, just the accident. I was, at a, I was at a light and this lady came speeding down. She just didn't see the red light. This kid was pulling out on his bike and she hit him. And fortunately he was okay when it was all said and done. But I was called into court to, to give some testimony. And I had a lot of questions about a lot of different things. But I knew what I saw. I could, I could talk about what I saw, the evidence of what I had experienced, but it didn't eliminate some other questions I had. And that's what we're called to as Christ followers. We are just here to humbly give evidence to what and witness to what has gone on in our life that is true. And what we've seen with our own eyes and experienced, John says, what we have touched with our hands, what we have seen with our eyes... I can't answer every question, nor can you. I don't know all the whys of every difficulty that goes on, but I can tell you about what I've experienced. 
So there's the benefit of humility. There's also the benefit of pursuit. See, what happens when we have an uncertainty in our life, if we respond to that properly, it's almost like hunger is to our body. We begin to pursue having that nourishment that's needed in our soul. You don't just leave doubt and uncertainty there to just create this vacuous space in your life. You begin to pursue, God, what is your heart on this? Speak to me, assure me. And you get on that journey and you begin to be nourished by God and God's presence. You get more diligent about... things like reading scripture and praying and wondering and considering and studying, even studying other questions. One of the things over the years that's been hard for me, and and don't hear what I'm not saying here, but as Christ followers, we need to be sure to not avoid good questions that the world asks. I've had Christians come up to me and say, I won't read that. I won't read, you know, maybe it's a, a book written by an atheist, or maybe it's a book that, uh, or maybe it's something somebody says. What are we afraid of? Now listen, again, I don't, I don't know that any of us has this responsibility to go out and study every subject and know it extensively or exhaustively. But when it comes into our realm, what, why are we afraid of reading about other, what other people think about certain things that we're pretty sure of? I remember when Claire and I, we were uh, doing lobbying in Washington, D.C. Uh, for Right to Life when we were in early 20s. And anyway, at one point, I bought a book um, by Peter Singer. Peter Singer... Uh, is was is an ethicist, and his whole he wrote a bunch of books on things like euthanasia. He's pro euthanasia, all these different things. And I started to study it because I wanted to know not just what I believed. I wanted to know what some of the voices were that were prominent that that was okay with some of the things that I desperately disagreed with. And I remember one of my friends at one point saying, "Why would you read that? I am not afraid." Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And I am in pursuit of the truth. If I'm in pursuit of Jesus, I'm in pursuit of the truth. And if I'm wrong, I want to know about it. I don't want to be afraid of those things. You won't get cooties. So, because here's the issue. Maybe deep down the question that I would ask myself in that situation is deep down, am I afraid that Jesus isn't really who Jesus says Jesus is. Or maybe I don't want Jesus to be different than the Jesus I think Jesus is. Maybe I've created Jesus in my own image. We have to be careful not to choose comfort over intellectual honesty. How do I know I disagree if I don't know I disagree? I love how Willard puts it. Dallas Willard, he says, followers of Jesus are required to pursue truth wherever it leads them. And then Ortberg says after that, this is perhaps a strange way to say it, but even more than that, we need to be committed to Jesus. Even more than we need to be committed to Jesus, we need to be committed to the truth. For it is impossible to trust Jesus if way down deep inside, you don't think Jesus was right. Now, I would say 
that pursuit of Jesus, and I, I know that I, I'm confident that John Ortberg would say that as well, that pursuit of Jesus is, is the same as pursuit of truth. Part of the problem is that truth has become so relative in our culture and society, and we don't talk about it enough. See, we are called to a tenacious faith, a resilient faith. We're called to be relentless with our faith, which leads to the last benefit of our doubts, and that is growth. See, it's interesting with, with our kids... Claire and I have always wanted our kids to do well and to prosper in every way, in their education, in their career. If you have children, I know you feel the same way. I feel this way for you about your life as well. I want them to do well in their education, their career, their achievements, their relational world, their finances. I want them to be generous people. I want them to be healthy. I hope they live in a healthy way, in every way. I want them to be people of influence. I want you to be people of influence. And, and, I know that life comes with uncertainty for my children. And it comes with uncertainty for you. So I want them to be people that can live in uncertainty, plus be caring and loving people, and then at the same time bring 100% of who they are, even in the most uncertain moments of their life, because that's what brings about a mature life, a Christ-following, growing life. Being all in on the life that you're given. Being all in on this journey, even when we're uncertain. See, the most important things in life come with uncertainty. When I was 18 years old, I stood on a, on a, on a platform, giving vows, saying vows to Claire. 18 years old. The day we got home from our honeymoon, I was told that I was laid off. I was 18 years old. You talk about uncertain about what's going to happen next. All I knew was I was all in. All in on this woman that I love. Yes, uncertainty is going to come. But I didn't say to Claire that day, I give 95% of myself to you because I got these doubts and some uncertainty about what the future is going to. Of course, there was uncertainty and doubt about stuff. But I am here for the ride of my life. As a dad, I look at my kids and I want them to be all in on their life, even in the midst of uncertainty. As a husband, I want to be all in, totally committed to a life that still, decades later, has uncertainty at times. How much more is the invitation from God for us to grow and develop? See, I don't have proof that everything's going to go 100% of the way that I hope, but I can promise that I can give everything I have to God in the midst of whatever uncertainty this world throws my way and you as well. Hebrews 11.6 says it this way. You can never please God without faith, without depending on him. Anyone who wants to come to God must believe that there is a God and that he rewards those who sincerely 
look for him. We want to invite you in the last minute or two here just to get quiet with God and get honest with God about where your doubts are, the questions you have for God. And if we're looking for God and not just looking for answers, we'll find God. So just get honest with God. Maybe you even want to write a little bit if you've got a pen and paper and just start to say, God, here's what I've been struggling with. Here's what my questions are. Just in the quietness of your own heart, know that God is not afraid of your questions and wants to be with you in them. Even sometimes when the answers are silent. There's a beautiful prayer that says, God, we ask not for what we want, but for what you know we need. We ask not for what we want, but for what you know we need. So in the quiet, be held by God. So if the words here are wait or stay in the silence or hold on, or the answer is just presence, we pray. Speak, oh God, in your presence I am home. 
So may this week carry you all week long, knowing that whatever question you have is held in the love of God. It's not held in the judgment. It's held in the love of God. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. So your questions, let God hold them all week long as they come. Get honest with God. Real relationships have real conversations. And so let God know what your wondering is this week. And look, look at Jesus. Everything else gets pretty dim. Bless you guys. Have a beautiful week of seeking.